the Bitterfly Podcast. Knowledge is food, bitches. Eat up. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're talking to Gail Stonebarger, activist and female queer scientist. Um, Welcome, Gail. Thanks. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, too. Um, This is part of my series within a series of people with super interesting jobs, and I'm stoked to be talking to you today because we're going to talk about your position in science and really, like, everything that goes along with being, like, a female queer activist in science. Yeah, it's a lot of hats. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of hats. Yeah. So like, I guess just start with describe your position in science. Like, where are you coming from? Like, how'd you get into it? Yeah. Um, so I have always been really into psychology when I was like in high school, I did all the psychology AP stuff, um, and went to college and thought I was going to be a psychologist. Um, when I got to college, I started taking all these like psychology classes that were more specific. And I realized they were pretty much all just like theories of old white men and like old white men telling people what was wrong with them (laughs) Uh, yeah (laughs) and it was really frustrating like really frustrating um I was the kid who was like getting in arguments with the old white professors in those big lecture halls being like wait a minute this is wrong um so I ended up having this class called behavioral neuroendocrinology with this super awesome, like super young decorated faculty member who ended up being my mentor for my like undergrad thesis. And we studied the effects of different types of estrogens on rats basically, (laughs) but on their cognition. So we were looking at different formulations of birth controls and of uh, like menopause hormone therapy and how that affects the learning side as opposed to just like the body. Um, And that was super cool and got me really into this like behavioral neuroscience concept, which is just sort of the like bridge basically between psychology and sort of what's going on in our mind and then neuroscience and what's going on in our brain. So like how those two are affecting each other. And so I applied to grad school. Portland was like the place that I decided I wanted to be. So I'm now in my in my fifth year of getting my PhD at uh, Oregon Health and Science University. So I work, I'm hopefully going to be done in like a year, um, but I'm working at the Primate Center here studying aging and diet and sort of, I'm on an Alzheimer's grant. So I'm looking at all these different aspects of Alzheimer's and whether monkeys get Alzheimer's and what we can learn from monkeys basically in order to treat humans who are aging and have all these neurodegenerative diseases holy shit that's so interesting so you're (laughs) studying pathology of alzheimer's like in monkeys yeah yeah do do monkeys get alzheimer's like is that are you seeing like the same thing happening in monkey brains as humans like as they age so it's actually super interesting that's one of the big reasons i'm studying it is that monkeys tend to get we now know that they get the classic pathology, like the bad proteins basically that accumulate in your brain. Um, You've heard of like plaques and tangles. Those are sort of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's. Um, And the proteins that those are made of, monkeys also get them in their brain, but they don't show this like really overt cognitive decline that happens when humans get Alzheimer's. Um, So we're kind of considering it almost like an early stage, 
but we're figuring out why it is that humans can have all this physical stuff and monkeys can have all this physical stuff, but humans get like this really toxic, like difficult dementia and monkeys don't. So it's a really interesting project to kind of like compare and contrast what could be going on. That's actually great. I didn't know that we were like doing like longevity studies on monkeys, like prior to talking to you about it. Yeah. So I actually have brains from the oldest known monkeys in the world, which is like amazing. So monkeys age roughly one to three, like what humans age. So like a three-year-old monkey is like a nine-year-old human roughly. Um, Whoa. Yeah. The the species that I'm studying, I look at rhesus macaques. Um, And the oldest, the brain from the oldest monkey I have is 44 years old. So it's like a 140 year old person. It's like the oldest monkeys in the whole world. And it's really cool that I get to look at them. Holy shit. That's so crazy. Okay. So like, what are some of the challenges um, to studying monkey brains to understand like human aging? Yeah. I mean, initially my personal biggest challenge, um, I didn't think I would ever be able to do primate work. Um, I hated rodent work in a lot of ways. I was like, in my lab, I was known as the person who was always sick. Anytime we had to do like days where the studies were terminal. And the yeah, cause were you're like an animal lover, right? So like, how did you stomach working on like any kind of animal really? Yeah, it was, it was a really big thing for me at first. Um, I mean, I've been vegetarian since I was like 12 years old. I have a dog who I'm obsessed with. I'm like, major animal person. Um, so I never thought I would be in animal research ever. Um, but I actually like working with monkeys more than I did with rodents, um, for a lot of reasons, but one is because with the monkeys, they're considered much more like they're higher life forms. Right. And they're taken care of much better. And so if, if nothing else for no other reason, even if the scientist who's working with them isn't as much of an animal lover as say like I am or you are, um, there are such strict guidelines in place. Like the National Institutes of Health, if you're gonna house monkeys, they have to have like a perfect life. Like we we joke that, it's not actually even a joke, that the monkeys at our facility have better health care than the employees. Like they literally do. <laughs> Their quality of life is like way better. Oh, that's way better. Yeah. That actually, that makes me feel really good. Um, Cause I've always questioned like the ethics of like doing studies for us on animals. Like, is this fair? Are they being treated right? So like, can you describe the life of a monkey at this primate center? Yes. So I actually love, um, so we, <laughs> I don't know if people know this. Oregon has one of five national primate research centers in the country. And uh, we have about 5,500 monkeys on the campus. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's huge. It's a huge campus. It's not like they're like crammed in. Um, my favorite part of lunch breaks, though, when I'm on campus is a vast, vast majority of the animals are in these um, outdoor like natural habitat enclosures. And there are these big acre wide or acre sized enclosures that are open air. Um, and you can go in these like little towers. There are these towers that you walk up and you can just watch the monkeys play. It's oh. so fun. And they live in troops in the wild. So there's anywhere from like 75 to 200 per enclosure because that's how they would naturally live. Um, they have all these like playgrounds and enrichment and it's really fun to go watch um, enrichment feeding 
because every day they have like different types of snacks and foods that they get as enrichment. So like the animal facilities will go out. Their fa- their favorite is frozen Gatorade popsicles. They <laughs> love grape Gatorade. Love it. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it's fun. In the summer, they get like sprinklers. Like we can go watch them play in the sprinklers. Oh. It's really fun. They like legitimately have really good lives. Um, and even there are some that have to be housed inside. Like um, a number of friends of mine actually work in alcohol research. And so there are monkeys that are part of drinking studies which is really, it's, it's funny to me, like part of the study is it's voluntary drinking, right? So monkeys like decide whether they want to get drunk and we like study how it affects their brain and like whether it's like a genetic component and there is obviously a big genetic component to how much people drink and how much they binge rather spread it out. Um, So are you seeing that in monkeys for those studies where like a certain certain like gene group of of monkeys like you know like their grandpa and them and like their kids all drink more than like the rest of them does that make sense yeah yeah there is definitely a big heritable component um certain families are (laughs) that's so interesting it is and actually that's another really cool part about working with monkeys is that they have their social structures are really similar to humans um so they actually they have a matriarchal lineage which i think is super cool i love um, that <laughs> right yeah um but it's you can see like they're you know kind of like levels of who's like more in charge than others and socially they drink differently when they're in social situations than they do if we just put them in a room alone with alcohol right yeah and so it's really interesting since monkeys are socially and genetically really close to humans we can study a lot more of the like actual environmental interactions as opposed to just like you you give a mouse alcohol and a you usually have to inject them because they don't like to drink so that's a totally different like brain process right if you don't know you're gonna get drunk then it's like what's going on (laughs) um but we can study like how they interact with each other as they're drinking and like if their friend is drinking more they're gonna probably drink more or there are some monkeys or it's the opposite, right? Like if they're alone, they drink more than if they're with their friends. It's it's really interesting. Wow. That's kind of reminding me of like the rat park. Um, the, exper- uh, the experiment with rats, I think they were giving them cocaine. You know what I'm talking about? They gave them like the option to like play, like with like toys and like some kind of like obstacle yes. fun thing. And then like, you know, if they didn't have that option, they were more likely to consume like the drugs that were given Uh to them it just kind of speaks to the environmental aspects of like addiction and drug use it's so interesting I mean and that also speaks to so I'm biased because I work with monkeys um but being able to look at studies like really critically I think is really important and that's actually one of the things that I want to do um with the rest of my life is that I know science really well and I like communicating science to other people but so looking, being able to look at what might be an issue in a study, right? So like with that example, if you're doing studies in rats with cocaine and they're all in a single cage and all they can do is nothing or inject themselves with cocaine, then like that's what they're going to do, right? Versus yeah. if you give them another option and they do something else, then that's like asking a totally different question, right? Like then if humans are doing cocaine, like no one is sitting in a room by themselves, not no one, but like for the most part, when people are doing <laughs> cocaine, 
you're not like sitting in a room by themselves, like with literally nothing else to possibly do in their life and deciding if they want to do nothing or do a drug. It is a weird experiment, isn't it? It's not very realistic, I guess. Yeah. So I've been, especially since starting grad school, I think one of the really interesting things to look at is like, what is this study actually telling us? Right. And so like the media would have a completely different view than like if a scientist read through it and was able to look at like, hmm, what are some of the problems with this? But what are, what is this like actually telling us it's beneficial, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess like going back, what is the difference uh, just real quick between how monkeys are treated and rodents? Like are rodents treated more as like dispensable, disposable? Rodents have the capacity to be treated as more disposable for sure. I mean, I, my undergrad lab, I was really, really lucky in that my um, boss, my, the scientist in charge of the lab is also an animal lover. And so she was very, very strict about like, this is how they're treated. You know, like the healthcare was really great. The vets were in there all the time. Um, but it definitely is much less regulated than it is with primates. And so there are slightly more opportunities for if someone's, you know, not as careful or as caring as my experiences have been, it, it can be more disposable, right? Or it's, they're also very cheap to house overall. And so it doesn't, I think a lot of scientists see them as more of a resource than a living being, right? Like you, like people do like practice surgeries and things like that. And those are important, but to me, it's a lot harder to justify like taking a life or potentially taking a life if it's not very specified for a specific, you know, reason. Um, and so that was, and again, like with monkeys, this is kind of morbid. I don't know if you're going to want to use it or not, but like with like rats and mice and other rodents, um, it, we do like sacrifice days. So it's like, you know, if the what? Is, they're called sacrifice. It's a sack day. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. What's, and what yeah. happens on a sack day? I mean, again, in my experience, it's always been very, very respectful. Um, but it's like, you mean rat studies are much bigger. Rodent studies are much bigger than monkey studies um, for the most part. And so it's like, you know, 20, 30 animals that you're euthanizing in a day. And it's like usually a pretty big, like group, not pretty big, but a group of people, right? Like someone extracts the brain afterwards. Someone does the, um, like anesthesia. Someone does all the different parts. Um, but those are really, really heavy days like very heavy days. And like I said, I was kind of known in my undergrad lab as like the one who was sick on all of those days. Oh yeah. Um, And monkeys are heavy in a very different way. Um, I mean, I, to be quite honest, cried and passed out um, at the only monkey necropsy I've been at because it is really, really intense. But I also think it's really important as a scientist, like I'm working, I do tissue studies for the most part. So I mostly work with the brains after they've died. Um, and it's really intense, right. To see like a living being take its last few breaths. Oh my God. Yeah. I can imagine. So when they euthanize rodents, Mm -hmm. were those rodents ready to die? You know, like were, were they of old age and like the same way that you you know, pe- people think it's so normal to just like euthanize like your dog or something like, oh, their quality of life's bad enough. Like, is that what's happening with rodents too? Or monkeys? Like, are they, are they dying of old age and you're just putting them out of their misery? Or is this like superfluous euthanasia? My, 
I think superfluous is maybe a little bit flippant because I do not to like be mean to you. <laughs> no, you're good. I mean, there's like a reason, right? Like there are, there have been circumstances where I've known of labs who like ran out of space and had to put yeah. rodents down. I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah. yeah. It's like, is there a reason or is it like, oh, we need a brain for this. So let's go like harvest yeah. one. So you know? rodents, it's much, much more like that. Um, monkeys, you have to have a very, very stringent justification for why the animal, you have to have a justification for why a study is terminal in the first place. Where rodents, you don't. Um, it, okay. If it's not a terminal study, you still are allowed to like basically make room. Um, and so you can get rid of the animals once the study is done. Um, there's a big move to not do that so much anymore. <laughs> um, but it happens. Whereas monkeys, if you're, there's so much paperwork and so much protocol of killing a monkey um, that it's a lot less common, right? That makes, so, that makes me really happy to hear, honestly. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. It's, it's really difficult to euthanize a monkey without, I mean, there's always, there has to be justification, but without like very intense justification. Um, this, the monkeys that I work with, the brains that I have now, it was actually a longevity study. They were looking at how long monkeys would live under different circumstances. And so they all died as naturally as like a dog would, right? Okay. Like some of them yeah. died, some of them were put down because they were so old. Um, but it makes me feel better that my tissue is very much like long life, happy animals. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Okay. That's, that's good to hear. So yeah. What are some of the drawbacks do you think that exist um, when you're studying monkeys for human biology, like information? Like what are the ways in which they like differ or like some, I don't know, some challenges that you've run into? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things, A, like I said, so like humans, you can di diagnose while they're living sometimes like this dementia, monkeys, we have to be really cautious about the way that we look at their cognition. And so there's all these like repeated testing effects. Basically it's that you can ask a human, like, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? How, you know, how is this affecting you? And so inherently monkey models or any animal models um, are not gonna have that. And so I am really careful about using the word like an Alzheimer's model or like a depression model or an anxiety model. Um, because in an animal, right, like half of half of the clinical diagnosis is like mood and thought processes and things like that. And mm -hmm. we just don't know that for monkeys, right? Um, the other thing that's hard is just the entire environmental aspect, like kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like humans with Alzheimer's have this whole life, right? Like we don't know what in their life in their history, in their everything could have been like contributing factors to Alzheimer's. And so it's both a pro and a con, right? Because in monkeys, we know their entire history for the most part. Some are occasionally wild caught or they're from a different facility and we don't know, but we know like what they've done their whole life. We know what things have impacted them. And so we can control for that better, but we that also means we don't have all of that, you know, playing into it, so. That was probably a little unclear, but one of my favorite anecdotes actually about um, environment and Alzheimer's is one of the only animals 
non-human animals that we know gets kind of full-blown Alzheimer's like with the plaques and the tingles and also the dementia where they kind of actually like start losing their memory, start losing their sight, start like their moods are weird. Um, is like pet dogs are one of the only other, like that I actually know of as an Alzheimer's researcher that gets full um, Alzheimer's. And one of the big theories is that they are the animal that most closely interacts with humans, right? And so there might be something like inherently environmental about something that we do, like the food we eat or the type of air we breathe or something about being in really close contact with humans um, seems to be special. Like wild dogs, not even like, like full-blown wild dogs, not feral dogs, like African wild dogs and dingoes and things like that don't seem to get Alzheimer's, even though they're like genetically very similar. So it's this really interesting dichotomy of like something about humans and like being so close to humans and interacting with the environment in a similar way as we do has some big impact on Alzheimer's, it seems like. Which wow, is that, that's wild and that makes me feel like bad. <laughs> I know I'm like you should spend less time with me after hearing that (laughs) interesting so um you talked about drawbacks what are some like things that you've learned from your research that like might help you know you or people you love be less likely to get Alzheimer's like what can we do yeah um so right now the project I'm working on is actually a calorie restriction project and so um basically eating fewer calories, but still having like all the vitamins you need, um, seems like it makes life a little bit longer. Um, health span is this concept in aging of, we're not necessarily trying to make people live longer. That could be a thing, but we're really trying to make people's healthy lives longer. So like, if you're going to live to 80, but starting at 65, you have this intense dementia, then like, why would you want to live till 90? Right. But if you're going to live till 80 and that dementia doesn't hit until 75, then like overall, that's going to be a better life. And so that's the main thing in the study that I'm working on, um, that before the monkeys died, they did these analyses and the health span was actually significantly longer in the monkeys that ate fewer calories. So they just went longer into their life without having these age-related diseases, whether that be physical or cognitive, um, they were just healthier overall, which is pretty cool. Um, Sleeping enough is a big one, which sucks. I don't sleep at all as a grad student, (laughs) but but we have a glymphatic system, which is pretty cool. It's like these um, specific cells in our brain, just like as we sleep, they clear out all these toxins um, that exist in the brain. So the less sleep you get, the less likely you are to actually clear those toxins out and it can start to like add up to problems, which is pretty scary also. But yeah, those are the big ones, honestly, eating and sleeping, which is like so basic, but like, yeah, (laughs) that's the best you can do right now. Okay. Interesting. There, is there any like specific like vitamins or nutrients that you think like would, would help like your health span? Oh, I'm trying to think there are some, <laughs> I've been more on the like direct calorie. Um, if, although I am working with a cohort, I'm just starting to work with a cohort of Western style diet 
animals. And so they were on diets that were much closer to like what Americans eat and they're high fat, high sugar. Um, mm-hmm. And those animals get pathology a lot quicker. Like it's, it's pretty scary what the difference in an animal on like a normal healthy diet that we specifically give them to keep them healthy versus an animal on a diet that like they like a lot more, <laughs> but it's what we're eating. It's high fat, high sugar and they, their health in general just declines. So I think just healthy, be healthy, I guess. Yeah. Do you think like a low sugar, like high carb, low protein diet would be, is that what you're seeing in monkeys is like best? Honestly, what, so I'm not sure. I can't speak to that as much. I'm less on the metabolism side and more on like the neuroscience cell type side. Um, but the monkeys that were calorie restricted that I'm talking about that have been like healthier are on just their normal, like healthy monkey diet, but they only eat 70% of it instead of a hundred percent of it. And then they also sometimes get, depending on how big they are, what they need, they get like supplemental vitamins just to get them up to how they, so that they have all the nutrition they need. They just don't have all the calories that they would normally eat. Um, so I think balance in general is good. Like everyone's got their own sort of like levels of what they need, even though we're given this like food pyramid of like, you should definitely eat this. And that's just not true. Everyone has different baselines of what they need. And if you can get in touch with your body and understand that, like, I don't know, moderation, basically just Mm. listen to your body, listen to yourself, (laughs) like (laughs) intuitive, intuitive eating. Yeah. Intuitive eating. Right. And like switching up like your routine, being on like a rotation diet or something, not eating the same thing every day, not doing the same thing every day. Definitely. I mean, and that goes back to like enrichment too, right? We were talking about like, if you have more stuff to do, your brain's going to be more active. You're going to rewire things. And that kind of works with metabolism too. Keep your body on its toes. (laughs) (laughs) So switching gears, you are a queer female scientist. Like how's that going? with all your hats and like, <laughs> yeah. is, is science unbiased? Like, oh God, no. Um, science is, is in- science just a cis white boy club? And you're like, <laughs> it's hard. I mean, yeah, it's hard. It's a very hierarchical structure and that works out well for older straight white men, like hierarchy not to get too intense, but like hierarchy is a white supremacy concept, right? Of that, like people can't be trusted to do their own thing and that the people above have all the power and that they know what's best for the people below. Um, and academia is very, very much like that. And working through those issues has been a really intense part of, of grad school. Um, I think the biggest, like most black and white example I have Ooh, that was a pun. (laughs) (laughs) Good good placement. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I have a close friend who is a couple years older than me. She came into the same program as I did um, with a clinical master's degree, which is more qualified than I was. I had an undergrad degree when I started. Um, And she's the cohort below me. And we've had very, very similar struggles in what 
um, like knowledge gaps and things that we're interested in and being queer women in science, like to a T, we are almost the same person career wise, except for she's black and I'm white. And she and I have had a lot of conversations, like even to the point of like, you get, my hair is like frizzy and curly and big. And she has frizzy, curly, big hair as a black woman. And she's told regularly that her hair isn't professional. Whereas if I wear my hair like this to a talk or something, it's this like cute little like, oh, she's kind of witchy. Like even just that baseline is really hard. Um, we had our first year, both of us, we were a year apart because she's a cohort below me. But like my first year, um, we had these comprehensive exams and I didn't pass mine the first try um, because my committee told me that I was too basically too psychology based and I didn't have enough knowledge on the molecular um, like protein side of neuroscience. And that happened, it was hard. And the solution was basically like, I need to take some more like biochemistry classes. Um, the Dean of the School of Medicine like emailed me and basically said, you're a student here, we accepted you. It's our responsibility for you to have this education. And I was like, this makes sense. I'm a grad student, you you know. Um, the exact same thing happened a year later with my friend, um, literally exact same. She didn't pass it the first try. They said that she was too psychology-based and too clinical, um, didn't have enough biochemistry knowledge. And it turned into like almost a year-long affair of like she was supposed to take classes at a college near here. They were going to be, you know, hundreds of dollars per credit. And she had to take like nine to 12 credits. And we don't get paid well as grad students, like at all. It's, it's called a living stipend for a reason. It's like just enough to live. Um, and the school wouldn't pay for her classes. Um, they told her she had to take the classes. They were like continuously following up with her. She found free versions of like biochemistry classes and those were not acceptable. Like it was just this whole long process of, for me, I was a white woman who was trusted basically. They were like, well, we'll figure it out. We'll take care of you. And really nothing came of it. Like I had a couple meetings with my bosses where they were like, you should read this paper. And that was it. And my friend had to go through the ringer. Like she was just constantly told that she wasn't doing enough and that she had to pay for everything and that I think she wasn't good enough. And like she and I have just had multiple situations like that where it's like- Where she got like no support at all in the same situation. Yeah, um, and it's just wild that we have like every single other detail of our scientific careers are either the same or she's more qualified. Like she's more qualified than me in a lot of ways because she came in with a master's and has all that other knowledge. Um, so that's really hard. I mean, it's it just goes back, I think, to this like, yeah, like white boys club of they know what's best and they're gonna tell us <laughs> what's best. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot, it's hard. Um, yeah, so it sounds like there's like barriers for not only women, but especially women of color and yes. people of color, probably in general, right? Like in science. 
Yeah, I would say that. I do think, I think women of color definitely have a hardest in science. I mean, women in general, it's difficult, um, but having that white privilege is something that can't be ignored at all. Like it is very real. Um, there has been a lot in science recently about this like ivory tower. Um, and that's been a phrase for a long time, but it's like now a little bit more potent, right? Like it's the ivory tower because everyone at the top is white. Like it's, it's really intense. And I feel good about the current generation of scientists coming up. Um, people like my age, even just in my department, we're all fighting really hard. Like our chair actually was just asked to step down because of racism and harassment claims. Um, and that was very student driven. That was like, we were all like, there is so much wrong here. Um, so that was like a big accomplishment. Honestly, I'm pretty proud of us. Uh, How did that come about? Like what was, can you speak on like what this person was doing and like what, how did you, you know, bring them down, yeah. so to speak? Um, so honestly, I didn't have a ton of personal experience with her. Um, another, the one experience I did have that was really off-putting is um, mental health and science is another thing that's really not talked about, which is incredible to me, right? Like I'm in a behavioral neuroscience program. We're like a psychology and neuroscience based and like no one talks about or acknowledges mental health that seems like the number one place where like <laughs> conversations should be oh my my, had about that right my bosses didn't know what imposter syndrome was when I told them I was experiencing it what their their response to me uh I probably shouldn't say this on whatever but the, I, said, <laughs> I was like yeah I'm experiencing a lot of imposter syndrome and that's been really difficult um, in a meeting I had with them and they didn't know what it was. I explained, you know, it's like this feeling that like everyone's going to find out that I'm a fake, right? Like that I don't actually know. You're not qualified for what you're doing. Yeah, that I'm not qualified. It's go I'm going to be discovered, whatever. And I mentioned like, it's very, very common in women in science, like just because of the structures and all these things. <laughs> One of my bosses answered, oh, well, the chair of our department is a woman. And like, that was his whole response. I was like, well, you're not, this is, <laughs> you're not getting this. <laughs> but, uh, but I guess that was just one of the things with our chair who stepped down was that many students had come to her basically and said like, this is an issue. Um, you know, people are dropping out. People are having suicide attempts. People are, you know, like, very unhappy and very stressed and very depressed and anxious and the department just really didn't do anything about it yeah. and everyone was like you know fuck that um it was really intense when we realized that over the last couple years like since I've started grad school um my program is pretty small there's usually around 20 students across the multiple years um and since I started there have been eight people who have either quit the program or taken extended leaves of absence. And of those eight people, six were people of color. And I was one of the two white people. And like, I'm very visibly queer. And so I don't consider myself like 
a visual visible minority. Um, but if you're gonna count, like count like that, like seven out of eight people who have in some capacity dropped out of the program were minorities of some sort. Um, and so bringing that information to like administration basically and being like, there's obviously a problem. Like 75% of people who have left have been people of color. Um, and th like the science world is kind of just like that. Like it's really, really hard on people who don't fit into this mold of like, there's that trope of growing up. It's like middle-class white girls are like who does well in elementary school, right? Because it's like made for that type of learning and that like type of person to succeed. And higher education is a similar trope, right? Like if you are a middle to upper class white man or white woman in a lot of cases, like that that's who it's made for. Like you're more likely to succeed. Um, and so pointing that out was a, a big step in like, wow, there's actually something wrong that we can prove with data. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that's good. Like justice was served against this like department head or whatever. Yeah, um, we're still working on whether, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if she's still going to keep getting paid. I don't know what her position is turning into. This is like over the weekend. We just found out that she is officially stepping down. It's been like a year long process. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, it's better than nothing, right? It yeah, is. it is. Baby steps, right? <laughs> Baby steps. Yeah, totally. So you talked about like your friend and her kind of like unfair struggles like in science and that was like I think a good example of like barriers to entry if you're not a cis white man in science um are there like any areas of science where women are getting more opportunities you know what I mean yeah I mean historically within the last decade or so psychology has been a very like femme driven field um women are getting more recognition for sure. I think it's, it's starting to be known that it is difficult, like just in the world, right? It's difficult in the world to be a woman versus a man, but especially in science, it's, it's a lot. And so there are a lot more sort of like groups, like there's a big women in science group in Portland. There's a lot of ways that women are supporting each other, uh, which, <laughs> surprising to no one a lot of it's looked down upon by some of the you know already successful men because you know it's like why would you need this like we did fine um but it's getting there i i have a group of women who um are all either in the program that i'm in currently or um one graduated a couple years ago and that has been such a massive support to me to have that be like, you know, like, oh, my old white man boss is saying these things and like, he's telling me I'm not good enough and I don't know how to handle it. And having like a group of women to be like, no, 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 like you are smart. We're all here because we're all like intelligent and capable. And just because you're not meeting the expectations of this, like one very old traditional out of touch man doesn't mean that you're not doing really good work basically. So it's getting there, right? Like we're, we're becoming aware of it. We all know what imposter syndrome is. Um, we, I think as a generation, we're much, much better about acknowledging and working with mental health 
Um, I mean, as the world is now, like all of us are fucking depressed, right? But yeah, um, <laughs> in some in some way or another, yeah, it's true. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so just having that like capacity to love each other as as we are, right, has been really amazing and millennials gen z like we're getting there right we're getting yeah. to where we love people for who they are not for who they're expected to be totally and that's kind of where my, where my well, hope is historically in science it seems like that like toxic masculinity characteristics were like really like appreciated you know where they helped you succeed like someone who's competitive and ruthless and aggressive and like women stereotypically like they're lovers they are you know like more cooperative and like a group environment and like more grateful like as workers and um so I'm happy more to hear to take advantage of because yeah of that. exactly and yeah. so like I'm happy to hear that like there are more opp- more opportunities are growing if, at the very least like people are pointing out like these things that aren't fair necessarily mm-hmm. in science yeah and I think that really ties into where the world is right now right like we're seeing all of these uprisings both like physical civil unrest uprisings and like philosophical awakenings kind of right people are like learning that just because we live in this world that's very hierarchical very white supremacist um philosophically i'm not saying everyone's walking around as nazis but like the country that we are in is is built on like white supremacy ideals and so the fact that people are like really realizing that and learning how to basically deal with that within themselves has made a huge difference to just like the rest of the world right like if we're saying instead of having these like very specific milestones and kind of micromanaging people to be this like cookie cutter of what science used to be um our generation specifically is getting much better about being like, okay, like there are so many different ways to be an effective scientist and to be um, a good person (laughs) and um, learning how to ask for help. That's like never been okay ever. And we're finally getting to a place where it's like, wow, this is hard. I need help from someone. (laughs) Um, Totally. How are you bringing your activism into science, by the way? Like, yeah. Are you are you starting these like conversations with your coworkers? You know, like say your white male cohort. Like, hey, have you ever thought about why this is so easy? For, you know, why you have breezed through, and I'm having you know like those kinds of conversations. Are they happening in science? Um, sometimes they are. Yes. So I think, I mean, I definitely my peers my male peers, I have had some really amazing conversations. Um, my cohort specifically is two men and two women and we're all white and we're all cis. Um, and I'm the only one who identifies as queer. And so it's kind of this weird, like safe space of there's no opportunity to hurt people of color in conversations that I'm able to have with them. Um, especially the white men have been very open to me saying, you know, like, hey, like, let's talk about this, um, you know, either in terms of race or in terms of gender. Um, And both of them, I think, because we have this, like, very close bond, as there's only four of us, right, so we're, like, going through it together, have both been very, very, like, okay, tell me how we can support 
you to. Like, we understand that, you know, as white men, <laughs> it's been easier in a lot of these ways. And so like, how can we support you as women? Um, and so I think it's happening more on the peer level in my experience. Um, I had another train of thought and I forgot, but um, have you had any like refreshing conversations with men in science where they were like, you know, thank you, Gail. I didn't even fucking think about that. And now like, you know, my perception has changed. I'm going to treat people differently. To be really honest, I think, yeah, I mean, yes, definitely. Yes. Um, the concrete example of ways. So a lot of my conversations have been a lot of them have been this very concrete, um, in science, here are some ways that, you know, like, here are some specific examples that you might've had this either easier or like that you didn't have this struggle. But I also have had a lot of conversations about conceptualizing how we got here, kind of. Um, one of the easiest ways I think that I can sort of, um, conceptualize it is I've had a number of talks with friends actually about money instead of science because it's a way to sort of like ground the principles of like mutual aid and like subverting this hierarchical like white supremacy system that we're all a part of that science really really academia really exemplifies um but just like, we're all poor, right? Like we're in grad school. All of us in grad school are so broke all the time until we get a real job. Um, and money is this really shameful thing in our society of like, if you ask for money, you're seen as like a mooch. Um, it's not fair. Like you work hard for your money. Um, and if you don't ask for money, you're like so ashamed all the time that you can't afford things or like whatever. If you give money to a friend, it's seen as this very like condescending, weird thing. Um, and so a big thing that I'm really proud of my group of mostly girlfriends, but I've had this discussion with like men as well of just like money is just a resource, right? Like we need to destigmatize that concept of like, I have a friend who was like, oh, I actually can't hang out today because, um, you know, rent's due tomorrow and I can't afford the gas money right now to, like, go to this park. And we had this really intense conversation about, I was like, okay, well, I'll Venmo you $10. Like, my stimulus check was, like, six months late. I just got it a month or two ago. So I was like, okay, I, for once in my life, I don't have a ton of money, but I can, like, afford to, like, hang out with my friends, right? Yeah. And so to me, I'm like, this is not, like, me paying you this is like I want to be around you and I have this resource and so why like yeah I'll just pay for your gas like if we were going to go to a bar it would be $40 a $40 tab we're going to a park I can pay you $10 like it just the concept of like it doesn't have to be a gift it doesn't have to be shameful and like I'm like okay you would have let me buy you a beer you would have let me do something else tangible. And my reasoning was, I was like, well, I honestly was gonna, I knew you were having a hard month. I was planning on going to this like boutique by me and buying you some self-care stuff. But I knew that like, while you would appreciate that money would be much more useful for you in your life right now. So I'm just gonna take that money that I was gonna spend on you and give it to you. Like, yeah. I trust that you know what to do with this money for yourself more than I do. 
Um, and it, it just opened this conversation of like, money is just another like principle that we're taught to be like ashamed of and we're taught that it's so different from everything else. That's not. so true. Yeah. And like, everybody's just kind of like grows up with this concept that like you, you work for the money that you have, like you shouldn't take a handout or something. Yeah. Like, like the whole handout charity concept of like, I'm, you know, I'm higher up than you. And so I'm bestowing this thing down to you. Like, that's not how money has to be. It's literally just a resource that we all need in this capitalist society. Like you can't function without money. And so I'm like, if I care about you, then I might give you one of my plants and that's fine. Everyone's like, oh, a plant is like this cute gift. And if I have extra plants, so if I have like ex- extra, but if I have like money that I can afford to give you, then like, why can't I do that? And so I think it's been really to tie it back to science. I know that didn't seem like it was about science at all, but having these like baseline conversations of kind of just like decolonizing our minds, right? Yeah. Because we all grew up in this society where, yeah, like white, straight white men are like this ideal that we're all kind of like trying to be like in a yeah. way. And like, just don't, right? Like, just like get rid of that. Like try and retrain yourself that like, all of these things are just concepts that we grew up with. They're not like the reality. And so that's been the most helpful for me, honestly, even dealing with all this science stuff is like, we're all humans. We all like interconnect. We all support each other and love each other. And so if you get to that place mentally, then all the other stuff kind of falls off, right? Like you're not going to be as racist or sexist or like classist or anything. If you understand this concept of like all just taking care of each other and like taking the shame out of asking for help and asking for whatever or the shame out of like offering help because like I said like even like if I Venmo a friend money it's this weird thing of like oh my god yeah. well, I owe you you don't owe me like all of yeah. that yeah so. and going back to science like spreading the wealth too you know like if you're a man that's made it to a certain level like that reparations <laughs> I was gonna say like that lie that like you worked hard and that's why you have what you have it's like well maybe but not always and you can always like share with others you know what I mean your success in a way like whether it's money or whether it's just like you bringing up someone in a room of opportunity like yeah I mean and that's the thing too right like money is not the only way we help each other it's just the most stigmatized Mm -hmm. um but yeah just just helping each other and loving each other and like just the basic things (laughs) really apply especially in all these weird ways that like are still really old fashioned and sexist and racist and shitty in general. Yeah, um, totally. So, uh, COVID, <laughs> Ooh, COVID <laughs> with your science perspective, like, what do you think of COVID? Like, what do you think of like the reactions to COVID mask wearing? Like, yeah. Um, so much. I, have a hard time with the like anti-maskers as most of us do right um the whole it's just a cold thing is obviously ridiculous there are like already lasting impacts of even if you're able if you're not one who dies then you're still gonna there's a high high likelihood of like cardiac effects lung effects there's something kids um kids are having like seizures and like epileptic seizures after they recover like saying that you're gonna be fine so you're not gonna wear a mask or you're not gonna follow social distancing or anything like that is 
incredibly selfish in my opinion like because a even if you're gonna be fine if you get it you probably won't in the long run you're gonna have health effects that last from it and like I mean us probably most of your listeners are these like millennial young people that have a high likelihood of of healing in some capacity but we're also around the rest of the world right like if you're like oh like it's just a cold I'm gonna go to work then even if you're only around young people, you don't know where those, where those people are going to be. You know, like some people live with their parents and people see their grandparents or you go to the grocery store and there's old people there. Like, and there's a very high likelihood of people who are old, full blown dying from COVID-19. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. There's no fucking mind control from wearing masks. I don't know what that's about. There is no like passing out from CO2. Like you breathe through a, a mat. All of that <laughs> is not real science. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> so do you think that COVID tests are useful? Like the antibody test versus what was the other test? The... Um, yeah, like the PCR and the actual like positivity for currently having it. Right, um, yeah. I think those are useful in that we should trust positives. If you go and test and you test positive, there's a pretty decent likelihood that you do have it because it's based on like the viral load. It's not going to likely not going to detect a high viral load of this like SARS-CoV-2 virus if you don't actually have a high viral load. The negative tests are less trustworthy um, because there's basically like this (laughs) graph of like a viral load gets up here when you're like either really symptomatic or if you're asymptomatic, it's like, you know, five to seven days after exposure is when you're most likely to pick up whether you have that virus circulating in you. Um, But the days before that and the days after that, like peak, Um, sometimes there's just not enough of the virus in like circulating in you to be detected. And so the way I kind of see it is like positive test means yes. Like always treat that as like, yes, you can spread this to other people, regardless of how you feel. Like if you have a positive test, other people can get it from you. Um, a negative test doesn't mean you're in the clear and you can like do whatever you want. Um, it's still worth taking precautions, but it's likely <laughs> that you don't, depending on what test you take. There's one in Portland right now that's 40% effective, which literally means there's a higher chance of it being wrong than that's it being terrible. right. That's terrible. That is like a horrible. Really... I don't know why, like, like you literally are more likely to be right if you assume the opposite of the test than if you believe it. I don't trust it. What? Yeah, I have no idea what the reasoning behind <laughs> even having that test available is. <laughs> but yeah. So you, and, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to talk about the antibody tests. Yeah, no, tell us, I was going to say, tell us why you don't trust the antibody tests. Yeah, I mean, because a coronavirus, like, I mean, a lot of people didn't know the word coronavirus until this pandemic, um, but it's a class of viruses, right? And like SARS, was a coronavirus, um, and there are in the common cold. A lot of common colds are coronaviruses, which I think is where this whole "it's just a cold" thing mm-hmm. started. Um, 
but coronaviruses are known they're basically like they kind of trick our bodies like we get these antibodies as we're fighting it off um and for the most a lot of viruses um we fight it off we have those antibodies and then our body keeps like a template basically of how to make those antibodies that it already made to fight that and so that's why a lot of diseases and sicknesses we don't get twice because even if we're exposed to that again our body has this like template it's like a blueprint of like this is how we fight this okay Um, that's really interesting like i have no scientific background at all so just like the idea that antibodies your body's like no we already beat this just do it again you know like that's yeah yeah it literally is it's like it keeps us a blueprint stored and it's like oh this is that we just build it and like fight it off um coronaviruses as a class I'm not sure how this works I don't think anyone is positive how it works but your body basically just doesn't store that blueprint very well so um like SARS you can get like we basically don't have immunity to SARS you can get it five times um which is very dangerous I mean people don't it was an epidemic not a pandemic like it was pretty well contained but um, it looks so far like COVID-19 is very similar to that. So actually a new analysis came out this week or last week of healthcare workers that had light cases of coronavirus from being exposed to patients. Um, it was like thousands of healthcare workers that they studied and they continued checking in basically on their like antibody levels, how they were able to respond. And within weeks, they weren't making antibodies anymore after recovering. So this whole concept of like, I've already had COVID, so I don't have to wear a mask or I don't have to social distance or I can go to parties now, whatever, um, is just wrong. <laughs> like it just doesn't work like that. If it were a different class of virus, then like there would be more hope in this herd immunity concept of if enough people get it, then it won't be able to spread because those people can fight it off without getting it again. Um, and that just doesn't happen, which is terrifying, right? Like that means the only way that we're going to get through this is the vaccine. The, the vaccine. There's just not another way until enough people get vaccinated that they're not just, that we're not just constantly spreading it between each other. Um, so you think that way. you think herd immunity is bullshit for, like, for not, this? Yes, yeah. totally. Okay. I mean, if you're, if you're some scientists consider, vaccination as a part of that herd immunity, right? Because it is like a number of people who can't get it in the population. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yes, the concept of natural herd immunity is full-blown bullshit for this virus. Like it just, your body forgets how to protect itself. So you don't have immunity anymore. That's so (laughs) sad and like weird. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's another reason I don't, I think the antibody tests that are out there are bullshit, right? Like, because even if you have the antibodies, it means that you recently were exposed. Had COVID. <laughs> had COVID, but you can get it again. So who cares if you already had it? Like, Yeah. Oh, so do you have like hope for the vaccines? Like, like, what do you think about that? I know that a lot of people, there's been some criticism like, oh, we're rushing it. Like we're rushing it so fast. It's not going to be effective. Or like there might be all these like weird side effects that come from it that are unforeseen. Like, with your scientific background, like, what do you think about this process? Yeah, there's a balance, right? I mean, there's a reason why the first people who were like, we might've figured it out 
what everyone's not vaccinated right now. You know, like there are processes that we have to go through. Um, the there has been a lot of like the FDA specifically is you know allowing these like testing to be pushed through faster. But pe what people don't understand, I think, is that that's actually really common for really important drugs. Um, and there have there have been negative effects from that before. Um, but if the FDA and these like regulating um, organizations see it as important enough to like skip some of the steps, like to me, that's that's just how it is, right? Like we don't want to be quarantined forever. Also, like people aren't doing it. People have quarantine fatigue. And so they're just doing whatever they want. And it's obviously things are going through the roof. I saw this graphic earlier the most deadly days in recent U.S. history was like a sh one of the mass shootings we had, 9-11, not a mass shooting, a bombing, 9-11, um, Pearl Harbor. And, and then, then like under, the last three days this week. Yeah, like the last yeah. like three or four days we're under that. Like, like it is a, yeah, it's a huge issue, obviously. And so pushing it through, like there are risks, but there are going to be risks no matter what. And we want to save more people than are dying. Right. My yeah. other favorite thing is people are like so concerned about what's in the vaccine. Um, my favorite meme I saw about it recently was if you were in college in a frat basement, drinking the jungle juice out of a Tupperware container, I don't want to hear you complain about what's in the vaccine. Right. <laughs> I saw that tweet too. That was hilarious. The other funny one was like, oh, you're worried about what's in the vaccine? Quick, name the ingredients in a Pop-Tart. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I mean, people are going to have issues with science no matter what. There's this whole weird counter science culture going on right now, which blows my mind. Like, yes, there are issues with academia. Yes, there are issues with science. But just saying that all science is bullshit and that it's like a liberal conspiracy theory whatever like no yeah <laughs> I just below no did you watch um Hulu just put out this documentary called totally under control which is a direct quote a direct quote from the Trump administration like about coronavirus um and it was really interesting because like we all lived through this this year but this documentary was like put together in secret over like a few months um, and it interviews like doctors and healthcare workers and people on the front line and scientists and talks about number one, like the US's super fucking slow and inadequate response to coronavirus compared to the rest of the world. And two, just like how the whole thing in the US became like scientists having to convince politicians like why this is something we should worry about and why we need to take action. Yeah. It was really interesting. And I have sad. not seen it. It sounds really interesting because like it is the US is such a strange how like how can you politicize a pandemic? Right? But we did. Like that's what we decided to do. Like the Trump administration was like, "Oh, this is a liberal thing." Like yeah. Yeah, it's, or it's, like let's not test because we don't want the numbers to go up. Like Trump literally said one time he was like, "I like where the numbers are. I don't want to like implement yeah. testing." Or whatever. I mean, that goes along with the same logic of like 
stop counting ballots because I'm ahead. Like, it's just the, the, the numbers shit that doesn't make sense at all, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. And then you have places like South Korea, which it, like, touches on in the documentary, Totally Under Control, which, like, they, in, like, I don't know, the first week, their response was to get, you know, like, the Korean CDC and, like, all these different people together. They met in such a rush. I think everybody met at, like, the train station in Seoul and just, like, a conference room. And they were, like, we need a national testing plan immediately like cut the cut the regular tape that like test need to go yeah. through we'll figure it out later but like we need to get something going now and like their response versus the U.S. is just it was like stark difference like complete opposite I mean it's what it's so the U.S. is such an individualistic society like to a fault right like I don't feel bad saying it is fully to a fault people are so disconnected from each other that like I mean, it goes back to what I was talking about, right? Like, we just have to fucking love each other and care about each other. And instead, people are like, this is my right to kill well, and people. we're also like, so disconnected from the rest of the world, too. We were like, oh, this isn't going to affect us. This won't make it here. And, like, one of the Trump administration's, like, responses to it initially was, like, shut down travel. Well, okay, now you have all these Americans all over the world, like, rushing home, like, through airports that aren't equipped to handle that many people at one time. And everybody is, like, during a pandemic. (laughs) I don't, I don't know if we could even come up with, like, a number of, like, how many cases were, like, brought to America from that, like, travel ban. You know what I mean? Like, it could have, like, worsened the issue. We have no idea. Um, I mean, like, it certainly did. There's a reason why New York City was, like, the hotspot for so long. Like, that's where everyone, you know, comes and goes. It's also giant and, you know, crammed in, lots of people crammed in, but it, yeah, the response has been horrific in in my and many other people's opinions, I think. Yeah, totally. So, like, I'm hoping for the vaccine. Um, we were, you mentioned a while ago, like, celebrity COVID parties. Like, can you tell, tell me and the listeners about this? Like, what are, what is America's elite doing during COVID? Right, so this goes back to the activism shit, right? But, like, this is, if, in America, if you have money, you do what you want. If you don't have money, you do what the people with money tell you to. And that is a constant, constant thing. I mean, I have just in Portland, so many examples, but yeah, it is like a thing currently that before rapid response to or rapid tests were even available anywhere in the US, like, obviously, that's what rich people had, like, they weren't even like fully approved before celebrities had these like 15 minute tests. And it was just like a thing like people would have full blown parties normal house parties rent out venues rent islands whatever and then they're fly their fucking friends in on private jets so that they can be separate and then everyone takes a test and when it comes back negative 15 minutes later they go into the party and so they have these like covid free parties and it's just the most like it's mind-blowing right like what could that money be doing in terms of like research or in terms of like testing the population that needs to be tested so that they can fucking go to work and pay rent as opposed to the millions of dollars of like flying people on private jets around the world and then doing these expensive unapproved tests just to party you know like just the discrepancy is wild it's i mean it's the whole concept of fucking jeff bezos could cure homelessness and hunger 
and still be the richest man in the world. Like literally still be the richest man in the world and cure all that. And like, I talk about this with my science friends all the time. I'm like, oh, Bezos works a hundred billion times harder than me? Is that, <laughs> is that true? No. Really? Like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I saw a thing somewhere that said like Jeff Bezos could afford to pay every single person in America $100,000 and he would still be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he is, he's definitely profited off of this pandemic. And I think a lot of other large companies have too, you know, like. Oh, for sure. I mean, it hasn't been a bad thing for large companies, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like regular people, essential workers, like we're all like floundering, right? And like our lives. And- oh, I mean, there's, have you heard the concept of being a billionaire is a moral shortcoming? Like there is no way around. If you are a billionaire right now, you're a bad person in some capacity, which like totally is very judgmental to say, but like, I think the biggest example for me, right. Is Dolly Parton should be a billionaire. She has made billions and billions and billions, but she also puts billions into things that she cares about. Like, I mean, there was the whole thing where the first vaccine that came out as effective was funded by Dolly Parton. And like, you can, whatever, you can say whatever you want about her, but like, there are people like that that could be billionaires, but morally know that like, what the fuck am I going to do with billions of dollars if the rest of the world is flattering? Like you can't spend a billion dollars. Like, no, like what are you literally in your life, you will, you will never spend money. Like that's just money you're taking out of the economy that will never. Yeah. I mean, it's sucking. The, the fucking wealth gap right now in America is significantly larger than it was right before the French Revolution, which was a war about the wealth gap. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. God damn it, yes. These are the, these are the problems of right now. Uh, yeah, go Dolly though. Um, okay, wait, Gail, so where's the hope in all of this? Like, <laughs> like there's a lot of shit, but I, I just wanna talk about like, what are the good things that you see happening like during COVID, you know, in science, in your activism? Like, let's give the people some hope. Like. Where's the good? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest hope, I know, the biggest hope that I've gotten through this pandemic and through all of the insane shit that's happening in Portland um, is just that the group of people who are currently on the ground activists are, like, inherently based on, like, philosophies of if you're going to be on the ground fighting cops the 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 level of care for everyone is amazing like it's I cry sometimes thinking about how beautiful it is because it's this concept right of like oppressed people are coming together to make the world better which is so cliche but like we're sitting there I I mean everyone everyone's in black block if you're out protesting because cops are literally going through twitters trying to find faces trying to identify people by shoes like what what is what is black block like everybody's wearing like ski masks on their face or what the black block is the concept of um it actually comes a lot from the hong kong uprisings um the it being in the mainstream but it's no logos um black cover your face with black 
basically you want to be not identifiable. You don't want to look different from your neighbor and you don't want to be identifiable in any other capacity. Um, be like water, right? Is like, it's, and it's really, it's almost a physical manifestation of a lot of the philosophy behind like mutual aid and community, right? Is that like no one person in that circumstance is more important or more identifiable. Um, we're all working together as closely as we can and taking care of each other. Like that's like a whole Antifa slogan is right. We take care of each other um, because the government's not taking care of us. Um, the rich people aren't taking care of us. And so the fact that I can go out, I actually, in the beginning of the summer, um, the first night that the feds were in Portland was like really, really brutalized um, attack a cop during a bull rush like tackled me pulled off my helmet that I was wearing um and I as I was tackled hit my head on the street um and they could like continued beating me with a baton while I was on the ground vomiting from my concussion um and over the course of that my friend who I was out with uh they strangled him like we're like sitting on his neck and pulling him up by his helmet um and so he wasn't able to help me and people who I had never had conversations with um who I didn't know rushed in and put themselves like very much in harm's way to get me out of that situation um and I just like remember this woman who I'd never seen I don't know if I've seen her since then because we were all in block um like literally ran in and pulled me out of this like horrible like beating and as I was like vomiting she's like carrying me down the street basically to get away from the cops and like things like that people are are willing to do anything to keep each other physically and emotionally safe and that's just like beautiful to me that it's it's not about like personal gain it's about we all care about like each other and making the community like this loving kind place as opposed to this place where there are like i mean a, a literal fascist police state right where like if anyone disagrees they quite literally kill people and like hurt people and I guess so the hope really comes from that people are really getting into this mindset of we keep each other safe. And so that like with mutual aid too, um, I don't know if you want me to start talking about this, but it's <laughs> this other concept of instead of this. Well, yeah, I don't think a lot of people know like what you mean when you say mutual aid, mutual aid. but yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel like it goes with the conversation of like hope and like, you yeah. know, things improving. So yeah. What is yeah. mutual aid and how is it being like implemented? Yeah. So mutual aid is, basically a counter to charity. And so charity is not inherently a bad thing, but the concept is that you have something, usually money, and you're like bestowing it on someone else. Like giving this, a gift like, to the to the poor people or like the, the less fortunate. The people below you. Like it's this like, it's hierarchical in nature, yeah. right? You're like, I'm above you. And so I'm saving you. Like yeah. a lot of it's this white savior complex. Um, and uh, people are not conscious of that. I'm not saying it's wrong to give to charity, but mutual aid is this concept of we 
basically as a community, you give to the community and then the community gives to you. And so in whatever ways you're able to help other people, you trust that it's not this like, it's not a gift. It's not like transactional in any way. It's like going back to being able to ask for help and being able to help when you can. Yeah. Um, The biggest example that I've been really into is a, a mutual aid I find to be much more transparent and accountable than a lot of charities and nonprofits. Like people will literally post screenshots of these are all the Venmos I got. These are the receipts of what I bought with it. These are the people who like receive stuff, which I think is a great trend that we should all get behind anyway. Right. If we're giving our money away. Um, But I guess I'll plug a little bit. Team Raccoon PDX is right now a mutual aid group that I'm really into. Um, They began because during this process of 150 plus nights of violent protests in Portland, I say violent and I mean violent on the part of the cops. Um, We can go into that at a different time if you want, but (laughs) as a part of this, they're literally tear gassing neighborhoods, right? And so, Oh my god, I read so many accounts of it, like, seeping through windows, and it, like, taking over, like, apartment buildings, Mm um, I mean, I myself got pepper sprayed, like, a few months ago, that was literally the worst thing that has ever happened to me pain-wise, um, I can't even imagine, so wait, what is Team Raccoon doing to help these people? So Team Raccoon is a mutual aid group, they began because, this is so fucked up, um, kids were getting gassed in their own homes, like little kids, because a lot of police precincts, right, are like in neighborhoods. And so as they're gassing protesters, they're gassing these neighborhoods, it's seeping in. And it's really difficult to commercially find respirators for kids. Because why would a little kid need a gas mask? There's never been a need for this before, right? Like, (laughs) not a big enough need anyway. Yeah, exactly. So Team Raccoon um, had the resources to figure out how to, um, like, get gas masks and, like, systems. They end up being more respirator systems um, for kids, but that was, like, the goal to begin with, right, is that all these kids are getting gassed. That's obviously horrific. Like, no one, like, and so passing out these respirators for kids who are living in honestly, a lot of them are really affluent neighborhoods. It's not even like they're going into these like slummy, however you want to neighborhoods. It's like very rich neighborhoods that they're just gassing everyone. Um, so who paid for, who paid for this? Like the community? This was community based. Like it's, it's literally, and that's one of the things that's so beautiful about mutual aid is people. It's like, this is my Venmo. This is my cash app. If you have a couple bucks, send it if this is something that you think is worthwhile and there's no shame of like like all the time I as a broke grad student I'll be like hey I actually that I can't give money right now like that's just not within my capacity and sometimes I can give other things and sometimes I can't but it's still this concept of like not not shaming people for what they have or don't have yeah Um, and since then it's grown um they now do adult respirators, um, when they can, they do food and jail support, um, like bail funds. It's gotten pretty big and like expansive. And it's just this concept of the community coming together to help the community's needs. 
I said, that's, that's so wonderful. Hey, everyone, if you want to like get involved in your area with like mutual aid, probably just Google your city and mutual aid fund, right? Mm-hmm. Like Twitter is a really good place to find Twitter. mutual aid groups. Okay. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. There's so much shit going on in the world. 2020 was a motherfucking shit show, but it makes me happy to hear that like these things are like happening and people are helping each other like through the bullshit. It's, it's pretty beautiful. It, yeah, it totally. Do you have anything else you want to add about hope in the world at large or in science or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think while 2020 has been a motherfucking trash fire um (laughs) it's been so hard for so many people but I think framing it as something that had to happen is really important right we have had our heads in the fucking sand like we as even like I've considered myself an activist for a long time and I've learned so much this year like when we have to start facing things that have been wrong for centuries um it's really really hard and it's going to inherently be really hard and I honestly very much see this as especially less the pandemic but because of the pandemic is why we've been able why people are out of work people are able to protest this is like very much a civil rights movement um that it's something we have to deal with, right? Like we have to internally do this work that's really hard. We have to admit that like we've benefited from white supremacy and from um, like everything that's fucked up, right? Like you and I, we're women and we're queer women. And like, it's, we still have struggles, but being able to like look at ourselves and do that really fucking hard work is just really necessary like so necessary and it like feels good to do hard things you know like at the end of the day like seeing how far you've come and how much you've grown just in terms of your perspective or like you know what you can entertain like like redefining your own brain you know decolonizing as you said your own brain like yeah I'm super like happy with like at least that aspect of like how the consciousness is waking up like the zeitgeist although anxious is becoming aware of like you said all these things that are wrong these like weird archaic leftovers that we have from our old life like I'm pretty excited to see like the future and like what what good yeah I'm (laughs) as my little like lefty soul I'm super stoked that people are like hey wait capitalism only benefits really rich people that's it like and it's really cool that people are finally like wow there are other like other structures and other ways to go about this where we're not just constantly oppressing people not that we're like gonna see the end of capitalism in our lifetime or anything like that but that people are actually realizing that there are alternatives and that there are things that they've been doing that have been harmful to others that they can now not do um it's a lot of growth. There's been a lot of growth in 2020 and it's growth is painful, but it's growing. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much for being on Gail. If you guys want to check her out on Instagram, it's at Gail Stone, G-A-I-L Stone. Um, She posts just a lot of really interesting shit. You should check it out. And then also hit up Team Raccoon PDX if you 
want to see like their model for mutual aid, if you want to start something in your own community, if you just want to check out like what your own city is up to. Um, Definitely. I'm also, I'm not someone who's like, ooh, DM me, whatever. Don't like slide into my DMs in any weird (laughs) way. But if you guys, if anyone listening has questions about mutual aid or about like how things work, um, I love political education and protest education and all of that. So I am super open to, if someone has questions, just like hit me up. I'm always down to talk. Yeah. Hit her up, but not in a creepy way. Okay. He's not in a creepy way. <laughs> yeah. I'm really, edu- I'm really, really gay right now. So like, <laughs> if you have a penis, I probably won't sleep with you. <laughs> You're too busy fighting the man. That's true. Let's just yeah. fight enough. Yeah. No, yeah. no, we're tired from fighting the patriarchy. So, <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Gail. It was so fucking interesting to hear about like your job, your activism life. Um, thank you. I, for wi- on. Yeah, I wish you the fucking best, man. You're the tits. Thank yeah. you. I know. Maybe eventually we can like hang out in real life again. That Some- would be pretty cool. <laughs> Someday soon, Virgos got to get together. You know, always.